When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we are live, at least I think we are, to both Facebook and YouTube. It is, I don't know, December 9th, December, January 9th. I'm your host, MD. We're gonna talk about why you need two shots spaced apart, weeks apart, to have the effect that they're advertising for these vaccines. Um, and I, it becomes interesting because now we're talking about, well, maybe we should focus instead of holding back enough vaccinations for that second shot, let's just put them all out there, get as many people the first as we can, and then scale up manufacturing in order to make sure people have the second dose. So let's talk about that. And then I'm gonna take your questions because we're doing this live and it's Saturday and we're just gonna go nuts. So I need your help to make this show actually useful for people because otherwise it's just gonna be me blathering on. Let me make sure everybody's here. Looks like Facebook is live. Looks like YouTube is live. Gabriella is here on YouTube. Misty Huffman's here on Facebook. We have locals in the house too. This is great. All right, everybody. So. Recently, it's made some news that um, President-elect Biden has said, you know, we, we're gonna release the entire amount of vaccine that we have available, and that way we can get the shot in as many arms as we can, and then we'll worry about the second dose by scaling up manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What they're doing now, though, is they're saying, no, here's the first dose, and we're gonna save back an equivalent number of second doses so that we make sure that the people who got the first dose get the second dose because of X, Y, and Z. So let's talk about what X, Y, and Z is and what do you think maybe the best approach might be? And again, there's no perfect answer for this. So first of all, let's rewind for a second. Remember, these vaccines were developed using Operation Warp Speed in a, in a, in a way that worked like this. Normally, you have these preclinical trials where you look in animals like a Syrian hamster or something like that, where you go, okay, this animal gets the same COVID infection that humans do. So we know we can use it as a, as a test case. Let's test a vaccine idea on this animal, see if it prevents the infection. So that's your first kind of proof of concept stuff with uh, vaccines, okay? So they did that and said, okay, this thing, works in animals for the most part. Then you have phase one clinical trials. Now phase one clinical trials normally are there to establish dosing. So what dose of this vaccine generates an immune response that we think based on our other models, animal and human, is actually gonna protect against the disease. And so in phase one, you end up trying out like, you know, maybe three, four, five different dose regimens. And then you measure antibody response and other responses and you know T cells and B cells and things like that to see, okay, are we getting an appropriate response at what level? And then where is the dose where we have that sweet spot of enough uh, activity against the virus that we're comfortable that's working without you know overdoing the dosing? And that includes the regimen of spacing. So like how often do you need to, can you just give it once? 
um, like some of the proposed vaccines in development, or does it require more than one dose? And the way you figure that out is you give the dose, you measure response over time, you see when the response peaks and you see if it's sufficient. Then you can give a second dose and then measure response over time and see what happens. Now in phase one trials, that's typically what you do. Now phase two is where now you figured out kind of what you think your dose is, take that dosing regimen and try it out on a, just a couple hundred people, like a small trial that's there to confirm, does that dose actually generate immunity, sorry, immunogenicity? In other words, the response that you measure in the blood to the vaccine. You're not testing it against the real virus. You're testing it against what you know from your models is a good immune response. And then are there any major safety signals that would tell a pharmaceutical company, you know what? You probably shouldn't proceed here with this because the phase three trial, which is the real trial that establishes safety and efficacy, uh, is gonna be super expensive, millions of dollars, and you have no guarantee this is gonna work. So that's why phase two really exists. It's kind of risk mitigation for the pharmaceutical companies. And in Operation Warp Speed for these mRNA vaccines, the Moderna vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, what they decided to do in order to get through this quicker. Now remember, mRNA technology has been in the works for a, over a decade. So they kind of get the technology, they just haven't had an approved vaccine yet, right? They've also been thinking about coronavirus vaccines for quite a while because of SARS and MERS. And so this isn't just out of the blue. So they establish a dosing regimen. They, you know, they have the genetic code, they establish a dosing regimen and the government said, hey, listen, we're gonna, fund the trial stuff. We're also gonna order the doses of these vaccines, even if they don't work. So we're taking all the financial risk away. So you don't need to necessarily do phase two trials to make yourself feel comfortable that you wanna develop the vaccine. If you're comfortable based on phase one and we're in a pandemic, go right to phase three, because phase three is where you're gonna show the thing actually works and it's safe, right? Because you're gonna need to do that no matter what. So skip all the risk aversion stuff and go right to the to proof. And if you find a big safety signal that looks like it's unsafe in the big trial or it's not working, well then, you know, it doesn't work. We're all out of luck, the government's out of money, but the pharma company still got paid. So that that's kind of how it was arranged, right? So what did they learn? And, and this is why I think people who say, you know, this is a rushed vaccine, I don't wanna get it, et cetera. This is what actually happened. This is how vaccines would have been approved. It just would have been spread out over a decade or more and a billion dollars for the pharma company, right? So that's what this kind of um, uh, pandemic did is it accelerated that process for this particular mRNA vaccines that are now under emergency use authorization because the phase three trials showed tremendous efficacy after two doses and tremendous safety, right? We talk about some allergic reactions. There was some cases of Bell's palsy. There's debate as to whether those were above and beyond the background rate of Bell's palsy. At this point, over 4 million people have gotten the vaccination. Um, and we'll talk about, we can talk about any safety signal that we're seeing because so far, apart from the slightly higher rate of anaphylactic reactions, in other words, allergic reactions, uh, so 11 out of a million instead of normally three out of a million for most vaccines, it's been, 
pretty amazing. There was a story of a, of a doctor, right, that you're seeing circulating on the internet who was an older doctor, got the vaccine, I think three days later, had his platelets drop to zero. That's per all reports. This is all, again, we have no primary data on this. It's all like from the wife and reports it's being investigated. And then he, because his platelets, which help with blood clotting, were so low, he suffered, a, unfortunately, a hemorrhagic stroke, a bleeding into the brain that cost him his life. And you know the anti-vaccine people are like, see, he was a doctor, he was pro-vaccine, he got the vaccine, and then he died. It's like, yes, it was tragic that he died. However, we don't yet know that that had anything to do with the vaccine because people get these things, and if they're and if you vaccinate five million people or something, you're going to just by coincidence have things happen. So it needs to be investigated further because idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura which is a res an autoimmune response where your body fights its own platelets. Often it's more common in children actually, I believe. And it has had some association very rarely with MMR vaccination, which is a live uh, a virus attenuated vaccine, right? That is often given in childhood. Now ITP is often reversible and treatable and very rarely fatal, right? So it also happens considerably further out from the vaccination than in this case. So there's a lot of things here that say, well, this may not be the vaccination. And if it is the vaccination, it needs to be, and it is being investigated and there's an autopsy going on and all of that. Then we can go, okay, well, what happened here? Is there compelling evidence that the vaccine may have triggered this? And then what's the frequency of this in the population? In the, let's see, 30, 38, 68,000 people in the trials, they never saw a single case of it. And in the millions of people that have been vaccinated so far, we have this one case report. So that's how you have to think about this stuff, right? Uh, it's not a, hey, let's share this on social media with the, hey, don't get the vaccine. And, and you know, that's the danger of social media. And that's why we do this show is to try to talk through the rational discussion of the science. All right, so back to the science on this, va on this vaccine. The phase one, look at this uh, uh, vaccination regimen According to Paul Offit, who recently spoke about this on PBS, and Paul's been on my show, and he's one of the people that I trust just implicitly about uh, vaccination stuff because he is a vaccinologist. That's what he does for a living. He's co-developed a rotavirus vaccine. He teaches vaccinology, and he's one of the most like sweet, humble, smart people that I've ever met and an amazing communicator. So what he said about the regimen here is that after the first dose, there in the Pfizer trial, he reported there was about a 50% efficacy uh, for preventing real disease in the Pfizer group. In the Moderna group, he cited, and I haven't double confirmed these numbers, by the way, he cited an 80% uh, efficacy after the first dose. Now people would say, well, th actually those aren't terrible efficacy numbers. And so why don't we just go ahead and give one shot? And then if we can get the second shot, great, but it's more important just to vaccinate as many people as we can. And then if there's some delay in the second shot or it just doesn't happen, it's not the end of the world because we'll save lives now. So that's the argument, right? But what Paul said was, he's concerned about that for this reason. The, in the original trial, the immunogenicity, in other words, the immune response measured by some of the parameters that I mentioned to you, whether it's antibody response, B cell, T cell, et cetera, um, was okay after the first dose, but it didn't quite approach the levels that a natural infection would trigger in terms of convalescent plasma. In other words, the natural antibody response seemed more robust than the vaccine after one dose. 
And so that's why the scientists said, well, it looks like this is gonna need two doses if it's gonna be really efficacious and also have a duration of protection. That is the best we can hope for. So it turns out after the second dose, which comes three weeks after the first in the Pfizer case, or um, four weeks after the first in the Moderna case, and by the way, I got the Moderna vaccines uh, several days ago. So my uh, appointment is coming up in February for the second dose. After that second dose, you get a really robust response. And that may also help explain why the sort of effects that people seem to report from vaccination seem to be more um, prominent after the second dose, because that second dose is a, hey, here's that spike protein again. Remember this? And the immune system's like, oh, hell yeah. I was just there, homie. Like I, I, I saw him and I was like, yeah, I remember. I remember you spike protein. That's cool. Cause I remember like someone sent me an email in the form of messenger RNA, got into my cytoplasm, didn't get into my nucleus though, because that doesn't happen. And cause that's where my DNA is and stuff doesn't mess with my DNA, all right? It's really hard to do. Got into my cytoplasm and my ribosomes like translated the message, decrypted it and said, hey, make this protein. And this protein that was made is this weird looking virus protein called the spike protein. And I was like, this ain't right. Let me put it on the surface of the cell to show my, my, my homies in the immune system. And the immune cells come by, see it on the surface of that muscle cell. And are like, that's not something I've seen before. Let's remember that. Let's start spinning up and making antibodies to it. Let's start ingesting and um, um, dealing with the cells that may be infected with this thing, right? And then let's generate a population of cells that remembers what happened here, right? It's like 9-11, never forget. <laughs> and what ends up happening then is when that second dose comes, now that, that population may not be maximized, it may not be as robust, because remember your, your, your source of infection is a single arm with a single dose of vaccination, right? In some cases that's enough. But what they determined is in this case, it wasn't enough to get a maximal effect. So you come back in a few weeks, give the second dose. At this point, you reactivate all of this, right? And you get this pretty aggressive immune response and potentially a stronger memory effect and a stronger antibody effect so that when you're then potentially exposed to the real virus, your chances of quickly knocking it out of commission and uh, putting it to sleep before you get symptoms, before you can infect others even, is much higher. So that's why that second dose for these two mRNA vaccines exists. Now you could speculate as to why you would need a second dose with these, but you don't need a second dose with other vaccines. Now remember, measles, mumps, rubella, it's two doses, um, right? They're not immediately apart from each other. Hepatitis B, same thing. I mean, the, the, these are, um, you know, it's not new to need multiple doses. HPV, human papillomavirus, right? Same thing, two shots, in that case, six months apart. And so now you understand kind of how this was determined. And so now when we're talking about, okay, let's see what's going on here. The vaccine rollout is way too slow. Way too many healthcare professionals are declining the vaccine. Uh, so that's a problem. But we re what we really need to be doing is immunizing the nursing home population and elderly people and people with chronic disease who are at the highest risk of dying from COVID before we get to the rest of the population that's at high risk from, uh, of spreading it to people. And so 
this idea then of, okay, well, let's not hold any vaccine back. Let's just get it all out there and start vaccinating the heck out of people. That's that's the reasoning, right? I don't think the reasoning is wrong. The question is, you know, I, I'm concerned that Paul is concerned about it. And what Paul says is what we ought to be doing is making sure we scale up manufacturing, but more importantly, all our money and effort really ought to be going into getting the vaccine into people's arms. And that requires an infrastructure that doesn't necessarily exist right now. I mean, the way he put it is you need an auditorium, a stadium, a church, a synagogue, all those places with lines of people safely distanced and masked going through and getting vaccinated because to generate community immunity, you need millions of people vaccinated, right? We don't know the exact number yet, but it ain't four or 5 million if you're gonna make a dent. Now, wh why does that? So that's where we ought to be putting our resources. And I hope, you know, Biden's talking about holding back vaccine. I think he ought to be talking about scaling up distribution and hopefully that's what they're gonna do. Um, why is this so important? And this is something that I think you guys really need to, to, to understand if you're still skeptical that this virus is a big deal, right? I, we know it's damaging livelihoods. We know it's hurting the economy. We know it's hurting our freedoms to congregate, to not wear masks, to go to school, to do our jobs, to travel. It's affecting all of that. And we've talked about that before. And you guys know that I'm a harm reductionist. Like I, I think you have to look at the collective harm in a whole system and try to mitigate it. But right now what we're seeing is hospitals really full, um, especially in California. I mean, it is the, the highest death rates we've seen yet in the pandemic, 4,000 Americans a day at the peak here in the winter. And this was predicted by a lot of public health people who said the winter's gonna suck because you have gatherings for the holidays. And by the way, I think most of this is happening at home. I don't think, you know, I, I still don't understand why shutting down outdoor dining or forcing you to wear a mask on a trail does anything. But then again, common sense was never a function of science really was it. But that being said, you can't deny that this thing is a real thing and it's causing a lot of havoc and we're not gonna get back to a real semblance of normal until we deal with it. So apart from the usual admonitions of, hey, don't gather if you don't need to, get tested if you're feeling sick and self-quarantine and wear a mask if you can't social distance, they all still apply. But if we could get this vaccine into as many arms as possible, that is the end game for this virus. Now, people will say, well, what about the, you know, these variants? Are they gonna escape the vaccine? And the answer is probably not in the short run, probably not. And the evidence so far is that they aren't. Not, and they're more, they're potentially more contagious. They're more sticky, they're more spreadable, which means it's all the more urgent that people get vaccinated. Now, you know, I'm gonna repost my earlier interviews with Paul over the course of the pandemic, and you can watch how he's very measured. He's like, okay, I don't know if this is gonna happen in time because here are the things we need to get done. Then the next one is, oh, we got done those things amazingly, and it looks good. Here's what still needs to happen. And then the next one is, oh, we got those things done. All right, I'm surprised. Here's what we need to do now. And it's really quite, amazing to see this accomplishment unfold, met with the skepticism of seasoned scientists who didn't think it could be done, right? So that's something, that is really something. Now we don't wanna fumble it at, in the end zone, right when we're right there, right? Um, so that being said, um, that was the main thing I wanted to make sure you guys understood as part of this live show. Now let's go and take a look at 
your comments and the like. Okay, so on YouTube, a supporter, Eric Shi, uh, and I hope Eric, you know, you and I are homies. I hope I'm saying your name right. Are those who are reluctant uh, to get the vaccine going to bureaucratically slow things down for those who want it? Now, this is interesting because Eric, I would not have gotten vaccinated if I hadn't seen the amount of hesitancy among healthcare professionals. And I had done a video where I said, listen, I'm gonna wait as long as I can so that frontline healthcare workers who are seeing lots of patients, I only see a few patients, who are seeing lots of patients can get this vaccination and um, I'll wait my turn, right? And in fact, it was my turn based on the tier system that we have here, but I was gonna wait longer. Then I saw 20, 30, 40% of healthcare professionals hesitant not getting it, waiting. And I said, well, then it's my turn because I looked at this data. I have decided I want this thing, right? People close to me have gotten COVID and gotten very sick and I don't wanna put my family or myself at risk. And so I got it for two reasons, not to die. And the second one is to show an example. So I posted the video that, hey, I'm willing to, I'm not just talking about this. I'm gonna put this thing in my arm. and. I got the Moderna one, cause that was what was available. And my side effects were pretty sore arm. Lasted a couple days, right? I'm happy, I'm glad it was sore because I know I didn't just get saline or something, right? Uh, so that that's my take on that. I don't think they're gonna slow it down. If anything, it's gonna open up doses for people who are desperate to get it, like many elderly people, people at high risk, et cetera. So go ahead and decline if you're not comfortable. But one thing I've said, and I'll say it before, if you're a healthcare professional and you're declining because you just don't, you're not comfortable yet for whatever reason, everything I've said, you don't, you're not buying it, that's fine, all right? If you're not comfortable because you read some bullshit on the internet that's misinformation and it fits some ideological belief you have about big pharma or government or corporations, uh, you're, just in, you're just being played. You're being played by these algorithms and you're not gonna like what you see in the mirror in three years when it's shown that this thing is pretty safe and effective. Now, if I'm wrong and there's problems, well, we did it with good intent, right? It's like, we're trying to save lives, right? So I, I still be able to sleep at night, although I will come to you, I'll be the first to say, man, um, we missed this in the data. It was there and we didn't see it, which, almost impossible. More likely we don't have this data, it's emerging, right? That's why we're gonna follow the doctor who got what looks like ITP, idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, and see what's going on, right? Because we want, we don't wanna mess this up. Nobody here wants to hurt people. We, we're trying to help people, right? Um, so if you're a healthcare professional, then you're going out in public and talking smack based on misinformation, then you need to STFU because that's a misuse of your position and it's harmful. Um, all right, let's see where we at here with questions. James Rivera, question. Have you on YouTube, have you watched Medcram's video on vitamin D? If so, what are your thoughts? So I'm very familiar with uh, um, the, the Medcram dude and the vitamin D argument. And I think there's some compelling sort of direct and circumstantial information that vitamin D is very important for general defense against infection and COVID in particular. And the way you can think about it is, listen, whether or not supplementation with vitamin D is helpful, vitamin D is often a marker of you not living your best life. So either you're indoors too much, you're not outside, or, or 
you're a minority group with darker skin, you make less vitamin D in these Northern latitudes and in our sedentary internal working inside lifestyle, and you're at higher risk. And so there's enough data, I think that it's not unreasonable to say, hey, you know what? Find a protocol, there's some great doctors putting out you know, vitamin D protocols and give it a shot if you're concerned, but that's important, but equally important probably are exercise not eating the standard American diet that puts you at metabolic risk of dying of COVID by firing up this inflammasome, this part of your body that, that generates inflammation, which we know is harmful in coronavirus cases, diabetes, insulin resistance, heart disease, hypertension, these are manifestations often of metabolic syndrome, which is this inflammatory thing that I think we can put a lot of the blame of on the way we live in the United States. Sedentary, no exercise, high levels of stress, poor sleep and really crappy standard American diet. And I've talked with David Katz on the show about this. I've talked with Ron Sinha on the show about this. Prevention is the best method and you can't rely on a vaccine. You have to look at your whole lifestyle and Americans love to have a simple answer. I want ivermectin, I want hydroxychloroquine, I want uh, monoclonal antibodies, I want this. Yeah, I want all those things too. I love things that work. That'd be great if things that work, but I also, realize it's multifactorial, humans are complex systems and there's no one magic bullet for this, right? Even the vaccine isn't perfectly effective. And in practice, it's gonna be less effective because we can't get it into people's arms. You know, that, that's the problem. Um, so great, great question so far. Let's keep going here on uh, Facebook. Thank you to everyone on Facebook who sends stars. Stars are like a tip. It's a little monetary tip and uh, I go through afterwards and like those comments and read your comments and things like that. It's hard to sometimes see them all in real time. Um, so thank you for that. And for everyone who donates to the show via PayPal, paypal.me forward slash ZDogMD, I send you a little personal thank you email. And for everyone who supports the show on Locals, which is my, now my new favorite platform. Oh my God, I hope it doesn't get canceled because of all this Parler stuff, right? Because it's an independent free speech platform, but I don't think it's as cuckoo as Parler. Um, Let's see, uh, if Parler's cuckoo, I've never been on there. Yeah, I'm just parroting what the MSM is telling me about Parler. Do you like how I use the term MSM? All right, speaking of which, melatonin is another supplement that I think has low risk and may have some uh, feasibility. Uh, you know, Trump got it when he was sick. I, I, th I, I think that's another, and, and again, associated with sleep, but there's some other mechanisms involved on prevention side. Um, Arib Khan, great question. Uh, studies on being asymptomatic carrier after the vaccine. So this is the thing, those trials, those phase three trials weren't designed to answer the question of, does it prevent asymptomatic carriage? Because those two trials actually only looked at symptomatic cases, preventing symptomatic cases. And actually that, if you're gonna make one criticism of those trials, you could say, well, that may miss some stuff, it may, um, underestimate the level of infection that was going on and overestimate the efficacy of the vaccine. But the truth is, I think more information will come out now and we'll be able to see kind of what's going on. Now, just from a pure like historical vaccine perspective and a perspective of how immunology works, by generating an immune response rapidly to infection, you're much less likely to replicate a lot of virus and therefore be infectious. So. It's just from first principles, these things, if they behave like any other vaccines, should really put a dent in asymptomatic 
uh, carriers, which I do think asymptomatic carriers are a big component here, right? People don't have symptoms and it doesn't necessarily mean they're not gonna develop symptoms. They may just be pre-symptomatic, but that's when they're very contagious, right? And so that, that's when this thing spreads a lot. Um, can you discuss monoclonal antibodies, Rebecca Ryan? So these are very interesting. There's a couple different ones. There's an individual and a cocktail and so on. Trump got a, a set of these from Regeneron and did his famous infomercial on them, a promising free uh, Regeneron to everyone. Um, so what, what those are is they are basically laboratory-made antibodies to spike protein. So it's like what the vaccine would tell your body to do, we do medically. And their efficacy is a little mixed um, based on the trial data that I've looked at. Now, it probably has some effect and they're underused. So they're sitting in you know, refrigerators in these hospitals and a lot of people aren't using them because the key thing is you kind of got to give them quickly and a lot of, and it involves an infusion. So let's say you're coming in, you have some symptoms, you're not that sick yet. That's probably the ideal time to get the monoclonal antibodies. The problem is you don't know if that person is going to end up developing a fine course that has no problems anyways. And you're, you're giving them, you're just making them spend two hours in an infusion clinic that we don't have the nurse staffing to, to staff and it's expensive and time consuming. And it, you know it, you can have rare uh, allergic reactions and also it's not entirely harmless. And then once you get the monoclonals, you know it's tough to get the, I think you have to wait three months to get the vaccine is what they're recommending. Um, so that's my take on that. I, I think it may have some benefit, but I, it's, not a, it's not a slam dunk and it's being underutilized. Um, the question is, is it underutilized because people just don't know about it or is it underutilized because doctors are like, mm, not sure about this. I suspect it's more the latter, but we'll see. And also staffing, you know, the practicalities. In, in LA now, they're starting to triage patients and saying, you know what? Can't even come to this hospital, we can't take care of you. How the hell are you gonna do a monoclonal antibody infusion as an outpatient? You can't, it can only be done as an inpatient. At that point, they're very sick. Um, let's see, uh, where are we at? Uh, thank you, Gen Geneva, for the stars and asking about my, thanking me for my support of uh, nurses. So Julie Longmire, thoughts on Paul Merrick's recommendation for ivermectin for prophylaxis. So I did a whole video on that. Um, you can check it out. The um, bottom line is, yeah, there's some, you know, observational data. There's some randomized control data that's not great. It's like, Outside the US data, the trials themselves don't seem all that compelling, but on whole, the data seems to suggest that ivermectin, you know, given especially early, uh, may have some benefit, but we've been burned by these sort of data sets before, right? Um, so my feeling is continue to study it, be aggressive. Um, it doesn't have that many side effects, but it can have side effects. Uh, it's an anti-parasitic drug. Um, Again, my feeling is science the crap out of it as much as you can, but don't be really careful because when you're presenting this stuff in the form of a press conference, which, you know, Merrick is a friend, like he and I have corresponded about this. Paul's been on my show talking about his vitamin C protocol. And the problem with that is that was another thing that went kind of went to the, the press first. And then when you do the randomized control trials, it didn't quite pan out. And so it's really tough. It's really tough. Science is not 
as easy as a press conference, even when you have smart scientists who are very well intentioned. So you have to keep doing the science. That, that's my take. And again, I, I wish I had a more firm answer for you, but that's honestly what how I, how I have interpreted this data. Um, could you explain why having COVID and recovering from it doesn't protect you as well as the vaccine does? Stephanie Secreto. Okay, so this is a great question. And the and the, the truthful answer is I could lie to you and say, just to get you to take the vaccine and go, no, the vaccine's way better than getting naturally infected, right? The main reason the vaccine's way better than getting naturally infected is getting naturally infected comes with a cost. It's the cost of potentially dying, potentially having long COVID, potentially infecting others, potentially missing weeks of work and productivity uh, and all those things. So that's the main reason the vaccine is superior to natural infection. But if you're looking at actual immunogenicity, meaning the how immune are you using the vaccine versus um, uh, the wild infection, the theoretical reason that the vaccine might be better is that when you measure those that antibody response from that second dose, it's robust and it's focused. So all the antibodies that the vaccine tells you to make are to the spike protein. You're not making any other, you're not making any other viral antibodies, you're not making antibodies to viral, you know, RNA or anything else. It's just that spike protein and it comes at it from all sides, which is why it's hard to evade even through mutation and variants, the vaccine. And so the other, the other problem with natural infection is the virus itself seems to trigger a response in, in particularly men, according to Paul, where it interferes with certain immune response. So it actually, the wild virus actually tamps down your interferon response and therefore makes your immune response less robust. And so that makes you go, hmm, whereas the vaccine doesn't do that. So it's theoretically possible that the vaccine's better than wild type infection, wild type meaning getting it in the wild, you know, that this technical jargon. Um, and and uh, uh, that's pretty much it. Now, again, time will tell, right, what's going on. Um, and there's some evidence now that, you know, eight months out, people who got naturally infected are still immune. So, you know, and there are a few reinfections, but almost to a one, they're not as severe as the primary infection with I think one exception or a couple exceptions in Nevada guys, and we don't know the, to deal with that. They may have some immune dysfunction that hasn't been characterized. So it, it's not clear. Um, yeah, people asking about the fertility question. So this is another thing that comes up. It was misinformation spread online by uh, this physician Northrup, uh, who's kind of a known anti-vaxxer, known conspiracy theory person. Um, really, really, really guys, check your sources. You know, and people will say, well, ZDog MD is in pharma's pocket. H how is that? <laughs> you can look at that online and see payments from pharma. I wish pharma would pay me to say what I say, but there's no, there's no way. The only people who pay me are you. You guys pay me as supporters and watching the videos. So, and believe me, I can get a lot more views, a lot more ad revenue, and a lot more supporters saying crazy shit like Christ, Christian Northrup says, right? That nano, they're injecting nanobots, we're gonna, the aluminum in it, which isn't in it, is gonna cause us to be 5G antennas and the sterility thing, the sterility thing. So this idea, and I did a video on this, but I'll tell you about it real quick, is it comes from this idea that uh, uh, these couple of doctors proposed, and it was, it was not a doctor, it was a PhD guy who used to work for 
uh, was it Merck or Pfizer? I forget, you can watch my video, I, I talked about it. But he said, oh, the, you know, the spike protein looks like this syncytin um, uh, 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 protein that lives in um, developing placentas and is necessary for the placental development. And if we make antibodies to the spike protein, we're, we're potentially gonna cause infertility by attacking our own placentas during development. And the answer to that in a nutshell is uh, no, because the spike protein is actually radically different than that protein. It shares a tiny little sequence, not enough to cause antibody binding. And if this were true, infection with the wild type virus would cause infertility on mass and miscarriages and all of that on mass, and we don't see it. So, and we haven't seen any of this in anyone who got naturally pregnant during the, the trials or anything like that or since that. So that's just straight hooey. So take that off your, off your concern plate. It's just not an issue. Um, let's take a look at some other questions here. Um, if the person already had COVID, why would they need the vaccine? Kelly Racy, what a good question. And you know, this is where it becomes really tricky because we don't have enough data to go, okay, is the vaccine better than natural infection? Okay, well, first of all, you have to make sure they actually had COVID. So they had symptoms, they tested positive, they got better. All right, well, now we know they had COVID. So should they have antibodies? Should they develop immunity? The answer is they should. Will that immunity be as robust as what the vaccine confers? And will it be as long lasting as what the vaccine confers? And the answer is we don't know, but I mentioned the theoretical reasons why vaccine might be better and more long lasting. If I had COVID, I'll tell you what I would do. If I had had COVID and there wasn't a backlog of vaccine, in other words, I wasn't taking someone else's vaccine who hasn't had COVID, I would get vaccinated. And the reason is for that reason that I said that I would be all the more convinced that reinfection is gonna be very unlikely. That's why I would do it. And I'm pretty convinced that this vaccine is safe, right? And because I've looked at that data, I'm like, okay, well, the downside, minuscule. The upside, yeah. Less chance of getting infected, less chance of making someone else sick. I'm down to do that. Um, Thank you for the people who've been doing the live chat here on YouTube. Jennifer Lego sent five bucks. She says, LPN friend of mine has an immune condition and declining the vaccine. Do you think that your videos will help change her mind? I did a video on this. If, you, if you're breastfeeding, if you're pregnant, if you have autoimmune disease or immune deficiency, should you be getting this vaccine? And my answer was, it wasn't studied in your population, but from first principles and from the recommendations of CDC and obstet uh, you know, obstetricians, et cetera, those organizations, they're saying, there's no reason to think that you shouldn't. And if anything, because of your autoimmune or immune condition, you're more likely to get very sick from COVID. So the risk of the vaccine, tiny, risks of COVID high, the calculation favors getting the vaccine. But again, you're not crazy. You're not dumb. You're not an anti-vaxxer. If you do the internal calculation and say, for me, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm not gonna do it until more data emerges. That's okay. What I'm not comfortable with is you then going online and going, this thing is putting nanobots in us, so I'm not getting it. Or telling your patients, well, I'm not getting this vaccine because you know, this or that. It's like, that, that no, mm -mm, that's not okay. Because that's your personal decision. It does not apply to that patient. You give them information that they can make the decision. Um, 
So great question. Let's look at some other super chat stuff because these are, uh, <laughs> thanks, Christina. She sent 9.99 and says, you're awesome. That's a good question. Uh, Bender Rodriguez on YouTube. With COVID in general, what oxygen level should people be concerned? Mine is 94% currently. So Bender, are you, do you have COVID or are you just baseline 94? This is, this is um, d very variable based on the whole clinical picture, right? So I can't give you a specific number. I can't say, oh, at 90, you're worried. And you know, everybody has a slightly different protocol. Right, but I would say that if you're nor you know if you normally have a saturation of 98% or 100%, and you know you have no other comorbidities or anything, and your saturation's you know 89% or something, I would take that very seriously, right? Because that's a major change. If you have comorbidities like lung disease or diabetes or heart disease or anything like that, you would take you know you would have a higher threshold to be concerned, right? So that's how you have to think about it. There isn't a magic answer. And I think a lot of doctors who watch the show may say, oh, this is what I do, this is what I do, this is what I do. Um, Delaney C, how effective is Moderna after first dose? I've had my first and waiting on the second, I received the first December 24th. So according to the trial, it's roughly 80% efficacy. Um, but again, like I said, you're not getting as robust a response. So do not rely on that vaccine to keep you safe. Right, you should still take the precautions that you would normally take. Um, let's see. Thank you for the stars, Tammy, on Facebook. Um, let me see if there's some good Facebook questions here. You know, my husband has MS and got his. We both work in healthcare. Cassie Cornegay. Right. There's no reason really not to get it um, that we know of. Right. In in those patients. Gina says, I've had anaphylaxis three different times, bee sting, food allergies. I'm worried about getting the vaccine and having a major reaction. Uh, I don't think you're wrong to be concerned, but the great thing about um, getting a vaccine is they're gonna watch you. So you're there with medical personnel. So they're gonna have EpiPens on hand. They're already ready for this. So it's still a small risk for you. It's still actually a small risk because what's in the vaccine may have nothing to do with the things you're allergic to, right? That's why they say the only real reason not to get it is if you're allergic to something specifically known in that vaccine. That's that's really the main the main thing there. Um, let's see. Here's an interesting one, Pat Rick. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I'm 41 and healthy. Is it safe for me to wait for the Johnson & Johnson single dose? Also, there's a new strain already. Are, are we vaccinating for an old virus? This is worth asking, um, Pat Rick. I imagine that's Patrick um, on Facebook. So the Johnson & Johnson is supposed to be a single uh, dose. So it's a different vaccine. It's not mRNA. And is it wrong to wait? So you're healthy. You're not totally young. So I'm 47, I consider myself in moderate risk. You're 41. Uh, it depends on what you do. So the other things in your risk, are you a healthcare worker? Are you exposed a lot? Are you at risk of exposing others? Those are calculations then you have to make. Do I wait for this thing or do I get the current one? And then also, is it available for you? So if it's not available, then it's not a question yet, right? It, hopefully it'll be available for everyone. But right now there's still a tiered system of going based on risk and it doesn't sound like you'd meet it unless you're a healthcare worker. Um, the second part of your, so that's how you would think about that decision. I can't make the decision for you, but that's how I would think about that decision. And we also don't know when or if Johnson & Johnson's vaccine is gonna be approved. So you might be holding out and you end up getting COVID. The, the second question of the vaccine um, being old, well, 
Again, so far we haven't seen any of the mutation variants being resistant yet. It takes quite a bit of mutation before you're gonna evade these mRNA vaccines because of how robust the response is to spike protein. Even if components of spike protein change, you have to change quite a few. It can happen and eventually it probably will happen, but it may, generally our experience with coronaviruses is it takes years to evade existing immunity to develop enough mutation. Um, but that doesn't mean it can't, this virus has surprised us. It doesn't mean it can't happen now. However, the great thing about the mRNA vaccination structure, that package is that it's like changing an email to change the genetic code of that vaccine and then wait six weeks, ramp up production, figure out how FDA wants to reapprove it because it's basically the same vaccine, just slightly different structure, but you never know, right? So you can change, you can update that, that vaccine very fast. Um, so th that's the answer to that question. Um, let's see. Um, where are we here? There's some silly questions. Uh, Tracy, how long should people wear masks and social distance uh, since we now have the vaccine? Annette Cannon. Now, this is a real, this is a real tough one because I want to tell you what um, I'm hoping for, which is that we can just stop the minute we're vaccinated. And I think that's unrealistic in the short run because we don't know the asymptomatic situation with <clears throat> vaccinated people. We don't know if they're not gonna transmit yet. Just We just don't know. We'll know soon enough, right? But we don't know right now. So I think it's irresponsible for me to say, throw off your masks and go hug everyone who's vaccinated and don't worry about it. I think it's tough. The other thing is how do you show in public spaces where there are mask rules and whatever that you've been vaccinated? And then it involves having to pull out some crazy passport, which I don't like the idea of that either. So. I think for now we have to still continue to be cautious um, just as being good citizens, just as caring about our community and others uh, above and beyond ourselves, but also a little bit ourselves because remember vaccine isn't hundred percent efficacious. After first dose, you're still vulnerable. After second dose, yeah, you may be one of those non-responders um, or you may be someone who is a rare person who is asymptomatic and transmits it to someone and kills them. So that's my thinking on it. I know it sucks. I know masks are a real tribal identifier now where you know, if you're in one tribe, you don't wear masks. If you're in another tribe, you wear masks. I think we should forget about the tribes and just go look. Let, how do we reduce the most harm for the most people? And even if you don't believe that, that the data on masks is that robust, it is actually a pretty low cost intervention. Now, some will argue it's not true because people who are deaf and it's an infringement on our civil liberty and so on. and. I, I don't know, I, I'm in the camp that's like, you know, I know I don't like masks. I've always hated them. I hate covering faces because you lose all the emotional connection, but I'm willing to do what it takes in the short run, even if it just shows solidarity with my fellow humans to get through a time that's kind of unprecedented in a hundred years when we're very divided, I'm willing to do that. I'm never gonna shame someone else for not doing it. And uh I'm just gonna do what's best for me and my family and my community. So that that's the way that I think about it. And we just don't know the answer to that vaccine mask question. That's why, you know, public health people say continue to wear a mask and all that, because they have to. Um, let's see, uh, Rebecca uh, Bonajon says, my husband's on blood thinners, eloquist for arrhythmia. Can he receive COVID vaccine? Yes. In fact, he should receive COVID vaccine because he, if, assuming he's in line for it, because we know that coronavirus infection is associated with blood clots. If he's on blood thinners to prevent blood clots for an arrhythmia, I presume it's atrial fibrillation, 
why would you want to naturally raise his blood clot list, a risk by getting infected with coronavirus? Because his chances of having a stroke from natural infection, even on blood thinners, you can get breakthrough clotting, um, is higher. So for him, actually, I would say the fact that he has an arrhythmia, it's a heart condition. The fact that he is on blood thinners, that's all the more reason to get that vaccination. But talk to your own doctor. I am not giving medical advice here personally. This is for edutainment purposes only, guys. I just imagine the lawyers. Um, let's see. Let's see, let's see. Lauren O'Grady, Dr. Z, hospice nurse here. Is there a blood titer after the second vaccine to tell if your immune system is responding properly? I think only within clinical trial capacity and research capacity. I don't think there's yet, and I, I'm gonna temper this by saying, I haven't looked at this specifically. I don't think yet there's a, oh, you're immune uh, titer that we have publicly and commercially easily available yet, like we do for you know hepatitis or something. Okay, so that you know, hepatitis you can measure for the surface an you know antibody and and you know that you've got likely immunity. I don't know that we have that yet for coronavirus, uh, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, um, but I don't think we do. Um, great question though; these are really good questions. I'm impressed with you guys today, really am. Um, sometimes when I do these public shows, like. <laughs> The comment section, <laughs> um, but today you guys are doing great. Um, Matthews on YouTube, the middle school in my area is forcing 12 year olds to carry big plastic dividers to each class and they put them in between desks. These things are taller than them. Do these dividers help? That seems a little excessive to me. It seems to me more hygiene theater. Now we know that the droplets spread like that, but in the class, that's one thing, but then they're in you know, the cafeteria or wherever else they are. Then I don't think they're gonna have those barriers. Depends on whether they're masking too. I mean, that's a lot. If they're just masking, that may well be enough. Because remember, children are less of vectors depending on their age. You know, I think 12 and under, it's data's pretty soft on them being a serious problem. Um, so, you know, that's one of those, we just don't know. I think, you know, you gotta look at the cultural impact, the economic impact the social impact and the health impact and make a decision. And that's why it's not easy. That's why it's hard. Thank you for the 1200 stars, Kathy. How long after contracting COVID should you wait to have the vaccine? This comes up a lot. I don't know what, I have to, I'd have to look at what CDC is recommending. I don't think they really, you know, they'll say, are you having fevers right now? When they ask the screening questions, right? Because they don't wanna confuse. Um, first of all, they don't want you there if you're sick, but, I, I would say your, your symptoms would probably mostly have to resolve. But again, I don't know what the public policy on that. Technically, there's not a great reason that you shouldn't get it um, from first principles, right? Um, but this is a common question. And I don't think there's been a, a real strong public statement on it because people are like, mm. correct me if I'm wrong. And again, remember, if you, if you think I know everything, I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't but I don't know that this is really fundamentally known. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I could hand wave like I just did, or I could tell you the truth. Alyssa Ciulo, uh, if you don't get some type of immune response after the second vaccine dose, are you less likely to be truly immunized? There are non-responders who just don't respond. And, and um, that happens with other vaccines too. So you'd have to see, I mean, it could be that that's true. Um, 
<laughs> and uh, Martina says, why do all the advertisements say I'm getting the vaccine to see my parents and friends again, yet nobody knows if I can't still transmit? I mean, this is, it's, it's great. It's a great question. Um, we don't know, but we have a strong suspicion that your likelihood of transmitting is much less. But it still would be, I think, a little irresponsible to get the vaccine, get anything less than both doses, and then go and see people without masks who are at risk. Getting both doses, seeing people without masks, I think the risk is lower, but I still think it's not fully responsible to do that because we just don't know enough. Now, I think we will know soon. Um, and I think th this is how I would say it. This is how I would feel about this. I got dose one of vaccine. I already feel so much better about my own risk and my risk of infecting others just from an emotional standpoint because it's less than it was before the vaccine. It's not zero. I can't put a percent on it, but it's less. That doesn't mean I'm gonna take a ton of risk, but it means that I'm not gonna be as, um, I'm in a better mind state, right? Than, than I was before. Um, so we'll get to this point, and I think it'll be sooner than we think. So this is the end game, but that's why it's important that we try to get a, uh, enough people to do this that we generate real immunity. Because if let, let, let me clarify that question. If you're vaccinated and your friends are vaccinated, go wild. At that point, I would be hard pressed to make a rational argument. Scientists will be like, well, there's a 33.2% probability that one of you is a non-responder. It's like, okay, that's where science fails and sense steps in. And you go, common sense says, we all did our thing. We're all vaccinated. Our chances of asymptomatically giving it to each other are like zero. Even if they're not zero, they're zero enough that we're okay. Makes sense? That That's where sense meets science. All right. I got to go. Um, you guys are the bomb. This was a, this was really helpful for, uh, I think uh, gonna be helpful for a lot of people having these discussions. Your questions were on point. For everyone who sent stars, thank you. For everyone who supports us on YouTube, Facebook, and locals, thank you. Um, that's it, I love you guys. Um, we'll, we'll get all through all this stuff. I know this week's been particularly hard. I did a show on the drama and all that, but I think um, I think there's a light here after we get through this pretty nasty period where the deaths are really at a peak. And it's because of winter and it's because of gatherings and it's because maybe we're seeing more of this new variant that's more contagious. All those things collude. And even you can mask and you can do all that, but if you don't have a pretty high percentage of people doing it, um, and it's a more transmissible virus, we need a vaccine. That's it. All right? Love you guys so much. Until next time, we are out. Peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just gotta ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, 
Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.